We're going to be looking this evening at the book of Titus, uh, chapter 2. And uh, we're going to be looking kind of just specifically at just four verses. This is one of those typical uh, run-on sentences that the Apostle Paul likes to give oftentimes. But usually when that happens, it means there's a lot going on there. And there's a lot to look at. And this is one of those instances. And so if you like to follow along in your own Bible, you can do that. I'll also have it up on the screen. Uh, But what I'd like to do is just kind of read the, the text. And then we'll kind of just circle back around and we'll go through some things. But here's what it says. Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. I don't know if this has ever happened to you. I'm sure it has, but I I know this happens to me from time to time when you're reading scripture, maybe just on your own private study or whatever, or you're hearing a message and you're looking at the word. And sometimes when you come to a text, something about that text just jumps out at you like never before. Uh, that certainly happened to me with this passage. I was a couple weeks ago just reading, and, and I had read Titus several times, you know, many times, especially this passage. I highlighted a few things before and after and in it, but for some reason, these four verses just jumped out of the page at me. And, and it was so much so that I was just like, I, I just never really have dug into the meat of this passage. And so I began to do that and was just blown away by what I found. And so that's just kind of what I wanted to share a little bit with you uh, this evening. And so we're going to just kind of circle back through this text and just kind of take it phrase by phrase, even word by word if we need to, just to highlight some of the things that are happening. So it starts off by saying in verse 11, for the grace of God has appeared. Now, even just not even that phrase, just the very first word, for, okay? This is important because this is a transitional word. So the Apostle Paul, he's talking to Timothy here. I'm sorry, he's talking to Titus here, and he's trying to get him to understand some things. So he began something, and he's moving on to a new thing, and he's using this word as a transition from one statement to the next. So it's important for us, whenever we come to a transitional word, to think about what is happening before this, before we just move on. And we need to get the context. And so in the book of Titus, Paul is talking to Titus, this young preacher, this young leader, and he's trying to get him to understand how he should set up the church. In fact, in Titus, he, he, in, in Titus 1, he tells him here, you need, to, you need to establish some leadership in this new church. You need to establish some elders. And he actually goes on to give him all the qualifications for the elders. He says, here's what your leadership should look like. Here's what their lives should look like. And he gives them these lists. So he doesn't stop there. In fact, in chapter 2, you can go back and read. I'll highlight some of it. Uh, But he actually goes on to talk about the entire church. He says, not just your leadership, but there's really a way in which the church, the believers in Christ, should act and live. He he goes to say that older men, you're to be be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith and love and steadfastness. Then he, he says, older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They're, they, they're able to teach what is good and train the young women. Young women, you're, you're to love your husbands and your children, be self-controlled, be pure, be kind. And he says, even, even young men, you're to be self-controlled, dignified in speech and, and doctrine. 
And he goes and he gives us this, this list of all these ways in which we as believers should live. Not just the leadership, but everyone in the church. The older men, the older women, the younger men, the younger women. Here's how you should leave for or, the, or because, and then he moves on to the next statement. Now, this is actually a little bit different from how Paul usually does it. Uh, normally, when he approaches an epistle, he'll, he'll start with all of the, these wonderful truths about God. He'll, he'll actually start with the why and then give us the how. Like, he'll start with all these wonderful truths about God, and then he'll drop this big therefore right in the middle, and then he'll go on to the how and the practical. But here, you see, he kind of switches the script. He's flipped it. He, he's going to start here instead with the why. Or I'm sorry, he's going to start with the wow and then move to the why. He's starting with the how, with the how, what we should be doing, how we should be living, how we should be responding to the word of God, and how we should live that out in our lives. And then he says, here's the why, for the grace of God has appeared. So that grace of God has appeared. Let's just look at that. Now, grace, obviously, we, we should understand this. We are a people of grace. And we know this. I, I know that you know this. I know you've heard this many times in your life. You, you live under grace. Uh, we, we know that grace is God's unmerited favor for us. It is nothing that we have done. There is nothing we can do to earn it. There is nothing we can do to deserve it. It has nothing to do with us and everything to do with God. You cannot earn something that is too valuable for you. You cannot earn his grace or his favor. It is just out of God's goodness and his kindness and his love given to us freely. Nothing we can do. We understand that. But... I wonder if we've thought about this. Can we, can we really understand tangibly, can we conceptualize grace? What is that really? Like, can we, can, we, can we understand it? Or is it just this kind of concept that we use to talk about God's favor and his love for our lives? And here the Apostle Paul is saying, yes. Yes, you can. You can understand it very tangibly. In fact, Paul is, is telling Titus, here's what you can do. You can understand grace by an event, one of the most important events in all of human history, and that's the incarnation of Jesus Christ. Because at the incarnation, grace came into existence in a very real and tangible way through Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is grace personified. He is grace manifested in human form to us as God himself. Now, this does not mean that grace came onto the scene for the very first time with Jesus. We know that that's not the case. God has always been a God of grace. Exodus 34 tells us he's, he's the, a God of grace. Uh, but certainly at the incarnation, when Jesus came onto the scene, grace appeared in a new way, in a tangible way, in a way that we could, we could understand, we could grasp in a different light. Do you remember Simeon in Luke chapter 2? And he's told that he's going to see the Messiah with his own eyes before his time is up. And that happens, right? The, the, the parents, they bring baby Jesus to the temple, and Simeon gets all excited, and he takes that baby into his arms, and he looks at that baby, and he says this, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace, for my eyes have seen your salvation. I haven't just heard of your salvation. I have physically seen, I have physically touching your salvation. It's not just a concept, it's a person. And that's the same idea with grace appearing. The grace of God has appeared. Jesus Christ, who is the personification of grace, has appeared and changed everything. 
And what an awesome, awesome truth that is. And it goes on to say the next thing is it, it bringing salvation for all people. So this grace of God, this, this, this tangible concept of grace that we can see, we can feel, we can understand is Jesus Christ. He has come and he's appeared and he has brought salvation to all people. Uh, I, my youngest daughter goes to a school and right across her school uh, is a church. And every, every day when I drop her off or pick her up or, or whatever, I, I, I have to pass by this church. And it's a, it's a universalist church. And, and if you know anything about universalists, they, they, they would love a verse like this. Because the universalist depiction would be that God has saved everyone, right? And that's, that's what the text is saying. He's bringing salvation for all people, okay? And if you take enough of these texts out of context and you stack them up, you would come to that conclusion. Despite any act on your part, despite any repentance, God has come. He's the Savior of the world. He's done all of these things, and so therefore everybody is saved. And that's the danger of taking things out of context, but... It's certainly not true. We know this. Uh, We know that not everyone will be saved. Uh, Jesus himself, in Matthew 7, said, Narrow is the gate, and difficult is the way that leads to life, and there are few who will find it. There are few who will find it. So the question is, how are we to understand this idea of Jesus bringing salvation to the world, and yet not everybody will be saved? And I think in order to understand that, we have to look at both angles. So first, the angle of the world, because this is absolutely true. And there are texts, including ours, that say this. Let me give you a couple more. 1 Timothy 2.5 says this, There is one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man Jesus Christ, who gave himself as a ransom for all. I mean, that, that is a very unqualified statement there. There is no caveat. There is no exception. He is the ransom of all. That's what it says. Let me give you another one. 1 John 2, 2. He himself is the propitiation of our sins, and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. The whole world. All. John three sixteen. we know it. For God so loved the world. Now, these aren't all of the texts. I mean, there are a lot of texts in Scripture that we could go to that talk about this idea that Jesus is the Savior of the world, that he is the ransom for all or for the many, for all peoples, all this different language. And if you took all of those texts out of Scripture and you stacked them up and you read them all, the conclusion that you would come to is that Jesus has saved the entire world, that his salvation is for all. And that is absolutely true. But then there's another angle as well, because we know that, it's, that there are, Scripture does give us some qualifications to salvation, mainly faith and belief, right? Let me give you some other texts. John 3, 14. Look at this one. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, uh, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes may have eternal life. So now we have a qualification for salvation here, and it's that whoever believes. So now we've gone from the world to a qualification, and that's whoever believes. Uh, Then in verse 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes. There's that qualification again. Verse 17, 
God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world should be saved through him, and he who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed. The qualifications are there. So we know that Jesus is the Savior of the world. We have texts that support that. He's the ransom for all, that he died for all. But this salvation is for those specifically who believe. So, okay, well, which one is it? Is Jesus the Savior of the world, or is he the Savior of those who believe? Both. <laughs> yes, the answer is yes, he is. Right? Both. Because that's what Scripture teaches us. You don't take one side or just the other. You take it all to understand what he's saying. Now, let me give you another text here. And this one's interesting. 1 Timothy 4, 9 through 10 says this. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. For to this end we toil and strive because we have our hope set on the living God who is the Savior of all people. There it is again. But especially of those who believe. So we have both in this text. He's the Savior of all people, but especially to those who believe. So how do we reconcile that thought? Well, let me follow me with, well, on this one. I think that uh, there is a sense uh, in which, a way in which all of humanity, to some degree, experiences the same salvation that a believer experiences. To some degree. Uh, there's an extent in which the grace of God in Christ reaches the world in a general sense, in a holistic sense. Uh, think of it this way. It's the, it's the reason that we are not consumed instantaneously at the moment of our first iniquity. At the moment of our very first sin, we're not wiped. At, the wages of sin is death, right? That's what it says. But yet, in our sin, we're not destroyed. You see, there's a type of, we would call it common grace or general salvation. There's a type, a sense in which that Jesus Christ, through his sacrifice and what he's done, has accomplished a type of salvation for the entire world. Uh, Matthew 5.45 says he makes this, his son rise on the evil and the good. He sends rain on the just and the unjust. This is a type of common grace, a type of general salvation that's offered to the world. We, we also know that the Holy Spirit is in the world, that, that goodness is in the world. The Holy Spirit, through his people in this world, helping to restrain evil and sin and fight back and push against so that this world doesn't just go crazy. That's a type of general salvation, a type of common grace Think about even the sincere offer of heaven that's extended to all. That salvation is for anyone who would come, anyone who would believe just the fact that God allows for time of repentance to come to salvation is a type of salvation that our world experiences. It's a type of common grace that we experience from God. I mean, think about it. There are some people in, in, in this world that every day they wake up and their aim in life is to harm not only themselves, but other people. I mean, they are wicked, wretched people. 
And the fact that they are even living and breathing every day of their life is, a, is an experience of God's common grace in their life. But even to the person who would say, we would say is a, is a pretty good person, who they get up every single day and their, their goal is not to harm anyone or themselves. They, they're, they're, they like to help people. They, but maybe they're not a believer and follower of Jesus Christ. The same thing is true for them. God's common grace, his general salvation is in this world to allow there to be time for repentance and time for them to come to that faith. There is a sense in which his grace and his salvation is extended to the world in a general sense, but it's extended to the believer in a specific sense. There is unlimited expiation. There's limited application. So another way that you can understand this idea is that Jesus' atonement, his life, his death, his resurrection, what he accomplished was sufficient to save the world. It was sufficient enough. It was powerful enough that anyone who has ever walked or will ever walk this world can be saved. His atonement was sufficient for the world, but it is efficient for those who believe. It's only efficient for them. It's powerful enough to save anyone. It's efficient enough when people come to faith and belief. There's a sense in which he dies in a general sense for the world, but that his atonement was for the many, namely those who believe on a practical level. Even our text in Titus shows this. Let me, let me just put it back up there and look at some of the things it says. For the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation for all people. There it is again. Training who? All people? No, training us. Okay, who are the us? That's the believers. Okay, training us to renounce these things. Go to the next one. Uh, then it says, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all law lawlessness, to, to purify and, and, and bring a people for his own salvation. Both are in this text as well. Look, look at the next one. Okay, this is the next one. Yeah, let me stop there. So there's, there's a sense, even in our text, where this is happening. He, there's a general sense, and there's a specific sense. Then he goes on to say in verse 12, he says this, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. So follow this. He says to Titus, the grace of God has appeared in Jesus Christ. This grace is, is powerful and is real and has brought salvation to the world. And what this grace of God is doing is it's training us. So the grace of God is training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passages. It's training us to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. It's as if the grace of God is our motivation for how we should be living. The grace of God is our personal trainer, if you will, in a spiritual sense. That we see the grace of God, that we experience the grace of God, and when we truly experience the grace of God in our lives, when it truly happens, the natural result in our lives will be to live a life worthy of the calling that we have been called to. The natural result will be to do the things that Scripture wants for us to do, not because we have to do those things, but because we have seen God's grace appear in our lives and we want to do those things. It's training us for all of that. Then look at verse 13. 
waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Again, waiting. Who's waiting? Us. We're waiting. We're the ones who are waiting for this blessed hope. So again here, we have another mention of appearing. It says, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Wait, wait a minute. I, I thought grace already appeared. <laughs> so what is this now that we're waiting for? Well, we know, we understand this to be the second coming of Christ. That in his first appearance at the incarnation, he came in grace. At his second appearance, he'll come in glory. His first appearance that of a lowly ba baby. His second appearance will be that of a victorious king. His first appearance ushering in the Christian era and the Christian movement in the church. His second appearance terminating it and starting something new. And as believers, we live in this in-between time. Kind of suspended rather uncomfortably <laughs> between the already and the not yet. His grace already has appeared, but not yet in glory. And it says we wait for that. We're eager for that. We long for that. Now, I, I know that I, I, want, I want to see my children grow up. I want to see my, my grandchildren grow up. I, I've got things in my life. I know we all do that. Goals and aspirations, things we would like to accomplish. But then at the same time, it's this, it's this weird balance, right? At the same time, I look out the window, or I look, I turn on the news, and I'm just like, oh, come quickly. Just come on, right? Just, let's just do this thing. It's going to be just going to be way better. We long for that, and we're eager for that, and we want that, and we are waiting for that. But why? Verse 14, the last one, he says this, who gave himself for us, to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Who are zealous for good works. I've had a lot of conversations recently with um, specifically one of my daughters about the idea of works because of an environment that she's in where works are viewed as important, and they are important, but important to the point of a need of your salvation. And we understand, because again, we're a people of grace, that there is nothing we do that earns God's favor or God's merit. It is grace alone through faith that we are saved. We know that. But at the same time, I think what we can tend to do is because we see the abuse of works so much on one side, we go, nope, and we go way over here, and we just go, grace, I'm just going to rest in grace, that's all I'm going to do, and we've neglected good works. Because I don't want any part of that, I don't want anybody thinking that I'm trying to do something or I'm earning something, and so the better thing is just to say, no, it's not works, I'm not going to do works, I'm just going to rest in grace, and I'm just going to, and we forget Scriptures like this that tell us that we're to be zealous for good works. To be zealous for it. 
It's kind of the, the idea that our perspective changes and our perspective switches when we understand grace rightly. That when God's grace so floods into our lives and we understand it and we get it, it does not become a list of demands that we have to follow. It becomes this list of things that we get to do because of his grace. Again, his grace is our motivation. We look back on his grace appearing. We look forward to his, his, his glory appearing again. And we sit in the middle and our job is to be zealous for good works. Why? Because we are a people of his own possession. And Jesus himself would say, you church, you believer, you're the salt of the earth. You're the light of the world. So let your light shine. Let it shine before others. Let your good works shine before others that they might see the transformation in your life, that may, they might see those things evident in who you are, that they might see the list that Titus is trying to put forward to his church and that we might do those things so that others around us would look at our life and do what, Jesus said, give glory to our Father in heaven. That people could look at us and see holiness, personal pursuit of holiness in our life and right living, not because we have to do those things, because we get to do those things because of his grace. That perspective changes the game. And when we get to do those things because of the grace that he's given us and because of the glory that's coming, people will look at that authentic lifestyle and they'll say, I want that and I glorify God. And there again is God's common grace at work because he's given time for us to get this right and he's given time for others to see it and come to repentance. And he wants that for us. He wants us to be zealous for good works. We need to be a people who pursue righteous living, a people who pursue personal holiness. I don't think personal holiness is talked about enough. But we are to have a standard we live by. And are we going to fail? Oh, yeah. And we're going to fall short and we're going to slide. But we are called to walk in a manner that is worthy, to be zealous for good works, to, to do all those things that Titus lists that we're to be about so that other people can see that and God can be glorified and honored. That's our challenge. Let me finish with just this Awesome verse, I just love it. Uh, John 1, 14 through 17. And the word became flesh. And he dwelt with us, among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as, as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and full of truth. And far from his fullness, for from his fullness we have all received, we've all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth come through Jesus Christ. And he is to be our motivation. That when we look back on the appearance of grace coming into this world and what Christ has done for us, that should motivate us. And when we look forward in eager expectation for the glory that is to come, that should motivate us to live the type of lives that Scripture wants us to live. So that God can be glorified and that others can come to Him. Let me pray for us. Father, I thank you for your amazing grace. 
And I thank you, God, that you have shown us grace in such a real, in such a real way. When Jesus Christ comes onto the scene, lives this perfect life, and yet for our sake, takes our penalty of sin and wrath on himself. What an amazing grace that is. Help us to be a people of grace, but help us also to walk with that grace and let it motivate us onto good works. Give us those opportunities. Help us to be a people who would let our light shine forth in a very dark age and be salt and be light in a world that needs it so that you, God, can be honored and you can be glorified. We thank you for your grace and we thank you for this time. And we pray that in Jesus' name, amen.